But now we're going to have our Bible reading. Uh, of, uh, the passage is going to be spoken on today that Peter's going to be leading us in. The outline's on page six in the booklet and Gabby's going to come on up now and uh, read uh, uh, Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Good morning, everyone. You have uh, an outline um, of the sermon today in your booklet. I think you'll find it fairly helpful as we go along. And if you could keep your Bibles open at uh, Revelation chapter 2, that would be good also. About 18 months ago, Meredith and I uh, had the privilege of visiting our daughter, Stephanie, when she was still in Central Asia. Um, And at the same time, we thought it would be crazy if we didn't sort of um, do a little through or two tour through Turkey um, at the same time, uh, just before we went to see her to uh, get some highlights of uh, some of the sites there. And one of the um, uh, things that we included was a visit to uh, the archaeological site of some of the early churches, um, one of which was the church addressed today, the church at Ephesus. was one of the biggest, is one of the biggest and best preserved archaeological sites of the ancient world. And um, I thought I'd uh, just grab a few pictures from the internet to uh, show you. I actually had a lot of pictures myself, which I, at the moment, cannot find. (laughs) So... That uh, wasn't very useful. But, um, there's a blank picture. No, there should have been one before that. Don't know what's happened to that one. But anyway, um, this is, you've got to imagine Meredith and I walking down here. And, um, this is just part of a walk that goes down, and at the end there is what was known as the Ephesus Library. Now, to get a, an idea of just the scale of things here, those little things down there are people. And you can see in comparison with the library, it's about three storeys high. It was originally about three storeys high. It's quite an incredible uh, structure there, uh, something when you're down there that staggers you, particularly to think that all this stuff used to be buried. That sort of amazed me. It was really incredible that, hang on, this is all buried and they dug it up. Um, and then this is uh, one of the amphitheatres that you'll often see referred to in the Acts of the Apostles where people uh, speak and stuff like that, that they've dug up one of the big meeting places again. These are people. You can see how small they are there. 
compared with how big uh, the structure is. It just gives you um, a scale. We'll come back to that uh, in a moment. So it's just um, walking among these things when you are one of those dots and uh, you're walking among uh, some of this stuff. You're just struck, A, by the vastness of the area, how big Ephesus was as an ancient city, but also you actually see some of the stuff that the Bible mentions, some of the inscriptions, some of the references to amphitheatres, temples, all sorts of things um, like that. And it really does cement in your mind, I think, more than anything else, that even with a book like Revelation, you know, so much weird imagery and all sorts of stuff that's fairly unfamiliar to most of us, um, that we are dealing with a book that's actually human history um, here, that these are real churches, real people that Jesus was actually bringing a message to. As Mike explained last week, Revelation is not only apocalyptic or revelation, that's what we mean by all its symbolism and things like that, and its prophecy, talking about what was going to happen then and in the future, but it's also a letter. It's a book written to and for the benefit of real people and real churches in the first century. And chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are especially addressed to seven churches that were in the area of of, uh, Asia Minor, which is today Western Turkey. Verse 1 begins, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Now the stars, lampstands, and the one who walks among them have just been identified in the verses directly before this. So in um, chapter 1, verses 17 and to 20, which are the verses that occurred just before, we get this. When I saw him, John speaking, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in your right hand, the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, what we have here is the resurrected Lord, the resurrected Lord Jesus walking among his churches in charge and in total control of their future. He holds them all in his hands and now through John he speaks to them. So chapters 2 and 3, if you like, could be called as uh, the outline is entitled today, Jesus Among the Churches. There are seven churches in all, but of course we're in this sermon series, we're only going to deal with two. First one today in Ephesus, and then I think Stephen George is going to be doing Thyatira. Yep, get the nod from Mike, good. Um, Next week when he comes. But of course in our community groups and Bible studies we'll be running through in a lot more detail 
um, this sort of stuff. All these letters to the churches uh, have a similar structure. They're stylized. They're spoken in the same way, same sort of uh, structure of their message. The Lord Jesus, first of all, commends the church for the good things they've done, then highlights the issues that they need to address. I call that the bad. Then issues a call or a command, instructing them what they need to do, and finally outlines the consequences depending on whether they continue as they are or whether they um, obey what Jesus has said. Now the first church Jesus addresses is the church at Ephesus, as one might expect if you had a knowledge of the ancient world. For Ephesus was the most prominent of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 and also the closest geographically to where John says he was when Revelation came to him in exile on the island of Patmos. Um, So here's a map that just uh, sort of set against the whole area of Turkey. Patmos, an island just down where John had been exiled to and you see Ephesus and then uh, the seven churches that are spoken of, not necessarily in that order. But Ephesus was a harbour port. Whole trade went this way, east to west, through Ephesus, across to Corinth and stuff like that over in Greece, and it was a major uh, trade route. About a quarter of a million people lived in Ephesus at this time. And it was one of the major centres, for instance, of pagan worship, of emperor worship, Um, In the second half of the first century, the emperor Domitian built a temple to himself. Worship was compulsory uh, there. And also there are other temples, particularly the the one best known is the temple um, of the great fertility goddess Artemis. And if you were to look up Acts chapter 19, um, there where Paul is at Ephesus, you would see that that temple is referred to a number of times in that chapter. So the threat of persecution, idolatrous worship, sexual immorality, false teaching, etc., was very real for this church at this time. So Jesus begins in verses 2 and 3, then with the good. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships by my name and have not grown weary. Now if I was looking at that on its own, I would say that's a pretty impressive accolade by Jesus about what they had done. He commends the church for their hard work and perseverance. And I think that um, what he actually means by that is filled out in what follows. Note how verse 2 begins with hard work and perseverance and then verse 3 returns to that theme um, again. So I think it's probably true we can assume that what happens in between is what he's referring to about their hard work and perseverance. First, the church is concerned about the moral character of its members as it should be, its own holiness if you like. Jesus said he knows they've been standing firm against wickedness. They've not tolerated wicked people. They're not like the Corinthian church, whom the Apostle Paul strongly reprimanded in 1 Corinthians 5 because they're allowing incest in their midst and they're proud of it. Further down in verse 6, you'll see, 
uh, we're told that they hate the works, the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, we have very little information about this group. They're mentioned again in verse 15 alongside um, those who followed the teaching of Balaam. And you can read about Balaam in Numbers 31 and how Balaam advised the Midianites to lure the Israelites into such practices as sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. We can probably assume that while not identical, the Nicolaitans promoted similar things associated with these twin sins of idolatry and immorality. The temptation uh, to syncretism by practising emperor worship was strong at this time. And a newfound freedom from the law was sometimes promoted in terms of libertinism, a lawless freedom to engage in whatever took your fancy. Not the Ephesian church, however. They did not tolerate such wickedness among them. Not as you might see today, say, in the name of tolerance and freedom. They knew God's purpose for them. That through sending Jesus into the world to die on a cross and rise again to new life was not simply to forgive them, but to change them so that they might be more like Jesus, a holy people belonging to a holy God. The pursuit of holiness as a church was not an option but a foundation of their life as a church as they worked hard to make it so in trying times. Now the second thing Jesus commends the church for is their identification of false teachers. They'd been diligent, it says, he says, in testing and exposing false apostles. So verse 2, the second half of verse 2, says, he commends them, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Now the teaching of the apostles, of course, is the very foundation stone upon which the early church formed the New Testament as the word of God. All the works had to be, have an apostolic origin, either in terms of actual authorship by the apostles or consistency with apostolic teaching, if they were to be identified as given under the inspiration of God. And you can read a number of books in the New Testament, particularly the pastoral epistles, Colossians, etc., to see what a problem false teaching was to become in the early church and uh, the claim of some to be apostles falsely. These apostles were most likely itinerant travellers who would uh, come to an area um, and claim to be apostles having God's uh, authority over the church. And their teaching was most likely related to some of the practices that Jesus had just referred to earlier. Hence the critical importance of testing. I wonder if you know that testing is the responsibility of the whole church. Every one of you. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Or 1 John 4, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Such testing involves 
both consistency with the teaching and doctrine of the word of God, especially when it comes to things like who Jesus is or the way of salvation. Um, Both these are very important. But secondly also by how teachers live. It may take some time, but false teachers most of the time end up being exposed through their lifestyle. The church at Ephesus had been diligent in guarding the truth of apostolic teaching and weeding out those who had claimed to be representing God as the apostles but testing such claims and in the end finding out that they were just liars and deceivers. So whether it was the pursuit of a holy life consistent with God's character or the formation of sound doctrine and rejection of false apostles, the Ephesian church had worked hard and persevered and as verse 3 says, had not grown weary in doing so. Now I'd call that pretty impressive if I was assessing things, just as well I'm not. Um, I'd call that pretty impressive. I would think even that you might think this was a model church. And yet Jesus has one thing against the church which threatens to totally undo it. As serious, so serious, that its very existence is threatened. So from the good, we now move to the bad. Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What could be so important that without it, all their hard work and perseverance in maintaining integrity and orthodox doctrine would come to nothing? Well, says Jesus, simply this. They had forsaken the love they had at first. Now, exactly what Jesus is talking about here as the sort of love they're talking about is something that's been debated. Is it love for Jesus? Obviously the most important, I mean the two great commandments, aren't they? That Jesus taught, love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Is it love for fellow believers? You can't really separate the first from the second in some ways. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Or is it love for all people? You know, the parable is good Samaritan widens out the concept of neighbour to anyone who we come across in need. And the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commands us to love even our enemies. So none of these in some ways can be really separated but I think if you had to put the emphasis on one particular thing here it's probably more on the horizontal love for fellow believers primarily and for other people and the reason for this is that what follows in verses 5 and 6 makes clear that the emphasis seems to be on works and the things the church the Ephesian church should do note that in verse 6 it says Not that they hate the Nicolaitans, but they hate the works, the practices of the Nicolaitans. And then when we come a bit later in verse 5, Jesus commands them to to do the things they did at first. That's what they're to do. In other words, it seems like the church had fallen into some sort of, if you like, cold, 
hard orthodoxy. A strong stance against sin, tight on orthodox doctrine, but their love for one another had grown cold. They'd come to love truth, if you like, more than love for God and for one another. I think that's an easy trap to fall into, friends. Very easy. If I can just share something from my own uh, journey as a Christian early on, it's certainly relevant to me. I was converted when I was 20 and I began to learn uh, fairly quickly, I think, what the Bible taught about various things, about God and other things and the way we should live. And that led um, to a desire to teach others and ultimately leading to training for the ordained ministry. Now, when I finished my training, I think you could say I was big on truth. And on one of the issues, particularly that was hot at the time, in fact, it's still fairly hot, really, in the church, it was the uh, the gender question. The extent, the ministry of women, still debated in, in many ways. And I was on the conservative side of things and thought anyone who wasn't was simply not reading their Bibles. Um, it was so clear. They'd, other people had given up the word and compromised with the world. Well, a few years later, I went overseas to do a Master of Theology at a strongly evangelical seminary in the US, California. Um, unbeknown to me, though, this seminary happened to be leading uh, a leading seminary in promoting the view of women's ministry that I had written off. So I went there um, and ended up being the only one who thought like I did. I went from being the majority with all the people around me who supported my view to the only silly idiot who thought like that. If that was not shock enough, the greater shock was that I discovered that most of the people who thought different to me on this issue actually loved the Bible and the Lord Jesus every bit as much as I did. And in terms of their devotional practice, they were probably better than I was. Now I can tell you that the two years that I spent at that seminary were some of the most important in my Christian walk, both as a person and as a teacher of God's word. It was not that I changed my views substantially. I did in some respects, and I can tell you that bringing up four daughters... Um, to read the Bible and think for themselves has continued to provide plenty of food for thought and challenges to my opinions um, on these issues. No, but it was not that. Um, But because my whole attitude, the reason it changed, uh, was because it changed my whole attitude to my fellow believers. My cavalier judgmentalism <laughs> is the way I, I term my cavalier judgmentalism of fellow believers ceased. I listened to why they thought what they did. All of a sudden, I'm reading the New Testament, I saw almost on every page the great apostolic emphasis on maintaining the unity of believers, the constant call to love one another, 
And I wondered how I could have missed it. Truth still matters. The word of God still reveals the truth about God and how we are to live for him. But apart from the essential truths of the gospel message about who Jesus is and the way of salvation by grace through faith, we're encouraged to love and unify around our common devotion to the Lord Jesus rather than divide and reject one another because we hold a different view on some issue very precious to us. We are to speak the truth, but we are to speak the truth in love to one another and maintain our unity in Christ. Now I'm sure if I did a bit of a straw poll among you today, we'd find some fairly significant differences on things still like the gender issues, baptism, certain issues surrounding the ministry of the Spirit, place of miracles, maybe healing, who knows, the understanding of Genesis 1, seven-day creation and the age of the earth, just to name a few. But if we reject those who differ from us, we don't talk to them. Or worse still, we use these things as an excuse for division. I think we begin to do the very thing that the Ephesian church had fallen into. Now, if such a temptation has not crossed your path yet, because after all, we are still pretty young as a church, aren't we? Let me tell you that I think it will at some stage. And if a church becomes loveless or loses that first love, even while maintaining integrity and doctrinal truth, this is not just a minor infringement, friends. In verse 5, Jesus says the Ephesian church should consider the greatness of such a fall. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Love is not an optional extra. It's at the very heart of who God is and who we are to become. God is love. It's an essential part of his being. If we do not love one another, we cannot love God, no matter how much we say we do. Consider just the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter by the Apostle Paul on love. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, see I know the truth, all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, miracle worker, great power, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, note the profundity of those last few words. Paul doesn't say, if I have no love, I achieve nothing. He doesn't say, if I have no love, it means nothing. He says, if I have no love, if I, have no love I am nothing at all. Friends, as a teacher of God's word, continually, of course, examining the truth of God's word, 
I have to continually remind myself of these words. Love matters more than truth. Sounds like heresy to me. But that is what Paul says. Doing matters more than knowing. To weaken in your love for God and love for one another is no minor thing. It is to suffer a great fall. So we come thirdly then to Jesus' call. He comes in the middle of verse 5 and verse 7, two different types. In the middle of verse 5, repent and do the things you did at first. And then in verse 7, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first is specific, the second is general. The call of the Jesus to the Ephesian church is to repent and do the things they did at first. The language shows here that the Ephesians were not completely loveless. In fact, if they really were, they, I don't think what uh, Jesus commends them for would have been possible. Now, it seems that they had lost the enthusiasm and zeal in their love for one another, probably maybe because they lost a certain zeal for Jesus himself that they first had when they became believers and formed the church. So they they are urged to remember, that's what the word consider means there, to remember and repent. The love they had at first almost certainly proceeded from a profound sense of the love God had shown them through their conversion and beyond. So friends, the first step in recapturing our love for one another is to reflect on God's profound love for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus, just like we've just done here. We do this as we read the word, both individually and together. We do it in song, as we do week by week here. We do it as we share our stories with one another, of how God has worked in our lives. We do it as we share in communion as well. And we pray that God might fill us with this love, with his love for one another. Then what we do, friends, is we look at opportunities to serve, to be friendly and welcoming to people, to include the outsider into our number rather than isolate and excuse and exclude, to exercise hospitality to one another. Now, community groups are a wonderful way, I think, that we can personally be involved in loving one another. And if you're not in a community group, I want to ask you to consider it. Why aren't you? I know there are sometimes work and other things, just can't do it, but I suspect sometimes the reasons are not very good. Before our family came to Adelaide, I was the pastor of a a new church plant, a bit like this one, except we had our own property and we had an old transportable building uh, initially for us uh, to meet in, in a house, fortunately, for our family to live in. Our first Sunday we had about 10 people 
And uh, from there we gradually grew into about 60 adults and almost as many children. It was a young family area. We had one woman uh, who'd been there virtually from the beginning with a child and a husband who wasn't a Christian, didn't come along. Uh, but a couple of years later did start coming along and ended up becoming a Christian. Uh, one day he shared his story of how he came to start attending church. You see, sometime earlier his wife uh, was pregnant with her second child um, and it became particularly difficult towards the end of the pregnancy, so difficult that she was flat on her back for about two months, a long time, because the pregnancy was in real danger. Now, uh, Meredith um, got going and organised the church to provide meals uh, to go into the house um, for most of that time. Uh, When this man shared his story, he said that he started coming to church because he was simply staggered by such kindness. He could not believe that people were making meals for him when he didn't even go to church. None of them even knew him. I thought it was simply one example of the truth that Jesus told his disciples that by your love they will know that you are my disciples. As one writer says, this passage, love for others is the distinctive badge of Christian discipleship. We need to do everything we can to maintain our zeal and joy for loving one another. It is the way we truly demonstrate that we're an outpost for Christ in a world that needs him so much. Well, from this specific call of Jesus, um, we move to the more general one. This is one that occurs at the end of all the letters in chapters 2 and 3. In verse 7, Whoever hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first call is specific. The second call, hear what the Spirit says, is general. These words were uttered many times by Jesus himself, you might remember, in his ministry on earth often particularly when he was teaching in parables. They function as a warning to open one's hearts and minds to kingdom truths that God has revealed. Um, Things that God has revealed to his people and now they need to heed them. To hear is to heed. To hear is to obey. In chapters 2 and 3, the call to address a particular problem is specific on the one hand, but then the call to take responsibility for what is said and obey is general. Well, let me then uh, conclude briefly with what Jesus says about the church's response to this call, what I've got in your outline as the consequences. Now, if you think that the call to love is just sort of some sort of optional extra for a church, consider the consequence of continuing as they are. In the outline, I put it like this, for the unrepentant, Removal of their lampstand. The last part of verse 5 says, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand, as we saw at the beginning, represents the church itself. 
the consequence of remaining as they are is that Jesus will take away their very existence. They will cease to be a church as such. Their witness for Christ will be taken away. Lacking in love is no idle matter for one who holds the lamb stands in their hands. On the other hand, says Jesus, for the victorious, in the second half of verse 7, the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. For those who through the strength provided by God's Spirit, hearing what the Spirit says, who overcome then the problem specified, in the case of the Ephesian church, lack of love, we have this wonderful promise. The tree of life from the very beginning is a symbol of eternal life. That is why when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they were put out of the garden so they couldn't eat from the tree of life. Otherwise their sinful state would have been cemented forever. Eternity is sinners. An absolute disaster. But now, through the redemption we have in Jesus, we look forward to the day when we will eat from the tree of life as perfected people. What a wonderful thing for us to look forward to. And believe it or not, it's precisely where the book of Revelation leads to an end itself. So I thought I'd just close with these words from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve them. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do today give you praise and thanks for the wonder of what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. As we've remembered this morning, in sharing communion, we thank you for your great love for us demonstrated through him. And so we do pray that you would continue to so work in us uh, that we would be known as a group of people who love one another. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do the things we need to do that, to continually reflect as a group and individually on your love for us and to continually uh, pray that you would strengthen us uh, to do and not just know 
and we thank and we thank you that as we do that we can rejoice in this great promise that we look forward to that one day we will eat the tree of life in your great paradise and we thank you in Jesus name Amen